Well, welcome to the School of Theology. We're uh, in our fourth session on the Doctrine of Scripture. And before we begin this evening, let me uh, give you an encouragement from uh, uh, the sound booth. Uh, we are to talk louder when we ask questions. And if you feel so moved to the Spirit to please come get in front of one of the two microphones. Uh, if you're under the age of eight, then you can grab a microphone and run it around the room uh, to everyone uh, who wants to uh, ask a question. We'd like to get the questions as well as the answers on the on the tape. And uh, Dr. Stacy will be here this evening. I got a cryptic uh, TM saying he was stuck in traffic and would be 10 minutes late, so he has four minutes left to get here. Well, let's open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, do thank you for your word, and we pray your blessing on us this evening as we think your thoughts after you. Uh, we thank you that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is indeed the word of God who was taken on flesh and dwelt among us. And he has poured out uh, his Holy Spirit upon the prophets and apostles of old. And so the Bible is his book and his gift to us. Help us, O oh Lord, uh, to appreciate that book uh, because you have, you have uh, indeed appointed it to be a means of grace to us, to bless our hearts and souls and lives and that of your church in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in past weeks, we've been looking at uh, God's revelation to us, both general revelation through the realm of nature and special revelation uh, through his prophets and apostles of old. And we also saw last time we were together uh, that the light of nature is very good and, and that the works of creation and providence are wonderful and they manifest the glory of God. But when it comes to knowing about salvation and the way of salvation that God has appointed for sinners uh, through which to be saved, uh, he has to reveal himself to speak to his church. And uh, he has preserved and propagated that knowledge to us uh, by having it written down, having the scriptures written. So we have the testimony of the prophets and the testimony of the apostles uh, before us in our lap, even as God has intended for the blessing and the spoiling spiritually uh, of his church. Uh, the uh, confession of faith in uh, chapter 1, section 2 lists off the books of the Bible in the Old Testament canon and the New Testament canon, and that's something we want to keep in the back of our minds. We're going to uh, think more about uh, uh, this week as we think together about canon. We also dipped our toe into canon and noted that, that the term canon was used by the church father Athanasius, but that the concept of God having spoken and revealed in his word and, and God having thereby given us a rule, a measure by which thing to, me, to, to judge things, uh, and what truth is, uh, is entirely uh, uh, in keeping uh, with God speaking to us in his word. In the Old Testament canon, the, uh, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, was placed in the ark uh, at the center of the worship life of Israel, according to Deuteronomy 10. And the scroll of the law, probably the book of Deuteronomy, was rediscovered in 2 Kings chapter 22 and immediately uh, was used in the life and worship of the church and humbled the people of God as they uh, once again began to realize what they had been missing out on. And the Old Testament, broadly uh, referred to as the law, was a norm for the life of Jesus and the apostles. Uh, and so if you want to know why uh, the Old Testament is accepted, we accept as Christians the Old Testament because Jesus accepted it and the Masoretic uh, uh, listing of books. So we'll, we'll come more to that in detail. Uh, tonight we break into new ground, and as we do, I want to plug... Uh, two books for you. Uh, one is a, is a very popular book, uh, a useful book by R.C. Sproul. It's entitled Scripture Alone, 
the evangelical doctrine. And there is a chapter in this volume put out by uh, P&R Press. There's a chapter on uh, the canon and where each book of the Bible came from. Very helpful book. Happy to pass that around as long as uh, folks promise to uh, not steal it, uh, but let it get to both sides. And then I'll pass from the other direction a stout volume, a, a really uh, very reliable evangelical book, a classic by F.F. F. Bruce entitled The Canon of Scripture. Uh, InterVarsity Academic Press puts it out. It's uh, a fine treatment emphasizing the role of the apostles and of revelation in the giving of the canon. Uh, also, if we could have the sign-up sheet going around at this time, that would be helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Now, this evening, one of the things we want to refer to is the fact that uh, there's a portion of what has been printed in Bibles before and uh, uh, what has been used uh, by the church before uh, that we don't uh, uh, typically find separate volumes on. The Old Testament canon uh, that you have before you, that you have in your laps, is mostly derived uh, from the Greek Masoretic text, from the Old Testament text. And they would have written the, the Hebrew letters uh, and uh, would have done so, their consonant letters, the vowel pointings would not have originally been in the text. Uh, can you imagine a language with no vowels? That was Hebrew and Aramaic patterned after it. Uh, and then later, vowel pointings were added, but the original is without vowel pointings. Uh, there are um, uh, vowel pointings at the bottom that were added. And then breathing marks at the top so that it could be chanted were even later added. But the original is what's in the middle. Uh, it was, however, a, a language not widely known uh, in uh, the empire, uh, not widely known in the whole set of empires that uh, took over uh, that realm, the Middle Eastern realm of the earth. And so uh, there was, uh, by um, uh, uh, a decision by the Jewish authorities, that they needed to make their scriptures more accessible to rulers. Uh, they took the Old Testament Hebrew text and translated it into Greek. And that translation was done by 70 scholars. And so uh, the, the uh, LXX was born, this, which is Roman numerals for, for the 70. Uh, 70 scholars, as tradition says, translated the Hebrew text from Hebrew into Greek. And that text was called not the Old Testament. It was called the Septuagint, uh, named after these 70 scholars. Uh, they uh, translated the text not as a theological production to have authority in the church, but as a literary production so that the rest of the world could understand uh, what the Hebrews believed, what the Jews believed. Uh, but Ptolemy ordered its translation for his library uh, in Alexandria, and so the Jews in the second century uh, or in, in, uh, uh, in B.C. times it was translated, but it was not considered... Uh, authoritative uh, by the Jews as a separate religious text. Philo, for example, never quoted from it. Uh, but you will, find, uh, uh, you will find it added as an appendix or in, in relevant uh, uh, later documents in one form or another. But if we look particularly... Translation of Yes. Yes, of just the Old Testament. Obviously, the New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew and Aramaic. So they translated it into Greek and made it uh, uh, literarily available. Uh, and uh, that translation uh, tended to include other books as well. And so 
what we know today as the Apocrypha, uh, also some portions uh, were later translated. And so uh, it gets included in various forms in different literary productions. But it's not a narrowly uh, religious or theological text authoritative for the church. If you want, for example, to know about some of the differences in English translation that you see between the New International Version on the one hand and the King James or the NASB on the other or the ESV on the other, some of those differences in the Old Testament are that the translators of the NIV gave a very heavy preference uh, for the Septuagint Old Testament Greek translation rather than the original Masoretic text. And especially in poetic sections, you'll, you'll read those two different English translations and you'll go, wow, I mean, what could the original have been? And it's because the NIV is translating through another translation, in effect. And uh, so there's a, a higher degree of indeterminacy uh, in the text and the degree of flexibility taken with its translation into English. Uh, let's look at the New Testament canon briefly um, uh, and some biblical references that give us the concept of canon. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 uh, and then chapter 5 and verse 27. If I can have some help uh, from the group. And then Second Thessalonians 3.6. Let's look at those three passages uh, together. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when we receive the word of God heard from us, he accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Notice that, <laughs> all right, this is, uh, let's see here. Yeah. All right, let me, uh, I'll, I'll read these. First Thessalonians 2.13 And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Notice that in this particular passage, there's an immediate acceptance or recognition of the word of God as true and sure in the church. Uh, Because uh, it is given by God, it is accepted uh, on this basis. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. Um, they, they accepted the message, they received the message, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. And notice that it was seen as doing something. It was seen as performing its work in you who believe. So there's a, there's a profound and fundamental difference between uh, a nice novel, uh, a very uh, nice history book, uh, even a uh, book of parliamentary procedure, those are nice volumes and all have their usefulness. Uh, there are volumes uh, that tell you how to design bridges and build them so they don't break, uh, fall down, and that's nice. It, it, it preserves life. But at the end of the day, there's something fundamentally different about inspired text because that is not just the word of men, is the word of God uh, and uh, performs a great difference or great work in those who believe in the Lord. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5.27 says, I I adjure you by the... Oops, sorry. Uh, I'm at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 27. Thank you. Um, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Uh, So here we have the Apostle Paul 
who's not just saying, uh, you know, this is a nice letter. You might want to have it read somewhere. But he's giving uh, an imperative. He's commanding them. He's urging them. He's pressing upon their conscience to have this read in the other churches. And so uh, the text itself is something that the church needs. The blessings and benefits that will come to believers by the text makes it imperative that it be read uh, to all the brethren, not just to some. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, in verse 6, we see more of the proper uh, attitude toward an inspired text. Uh, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and does not live according to the tradition which you received from us. Uh, so the idea here is that the Apostle Paul's uh, teaching to them, his body of teaching, uh, which is contained in his letters and his instructions to them, is something that you uh, make, can make a judgment about someone's life based upon, and you can change your relationship to them or their relationship to the church on that basis. It's a, uh, it's a very strong language of staying uh, uh, from uh, being too involved with someone, staying aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life because they have not uh, followed uh, the tradition, the apostolic tradition, which has been received. Uh, the point here is not that it's uh, unwritten and sort of abstract and therefore only known to popes uh, on down the line, but, but that it's something that is known to the church. It is the apostles teaching his body of doctrine and emphasis to them. Uh, we also see the apostle Peter in Second Peter in chapter 3 and verse 16, uh, making urgings concerning... Uh, the Word of God, Second Peter 3 and verse 16. Let me back up to uh, oh, 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So here, within the pages of the New Testament is a re- by the Apostle Peter, is a recognition that the Apostle Paul's letters are not only difficult to understand, that means he's read them, uh, and not only are open to being distorted by people that don't uh, follow apostolic teaching, uh, but also... Uh, that these sorts of uh, mishandlings of this te- of Paul's text of his letters is uh, the way they uh, way they mishandle the rest of the scriptures. So the the implicit teaching of Peter is that the apostle Paul's letters, his corpus, which was being circulated in the church at that time, uh, was like the rest of the scriptures. Therefore, it itself uh, was uh, part of uh, God's given corpus or or canon to the church. It is scripture, just like Isaiah, just like uh, Jeremiah, just like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Uh, we, we have in the pages of the Gospels uh, a preset expectation uh, for such a, an extension of the canon in the New Testament period. Remember that the Old Testament canon... Uh, is divided into sections. You have the Pentateuch and the historical books and then the poetic books. Uh, and then you have the, the major prophetic books and then the minor prophetic books. 
But there was a long period of silence before the coming of Jesus. So revelation, the giving of special revelation, is not a flat pancake kind of thing that continues all through history. There is a period of silence in preparation for the coming of the definitive word of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But he himself, Christ our Lord, set the expectation of his disciples and of his apostles and of the church, therefore, that there would be augmentation to this Old Testament canon. He told them to expect a New Testament canon, the giving of more inspired books. John 14 and verse 25 is where our Lord says, These things I've spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And so there was an expectation given by Jesus when teaching on the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, that he would lead his church or teach his church all things and that he would, the Holy Spirit would, bring to their remembrance what Jesus had said. Uh, There's one other passage in John 16 and verses 12 and 13 where a similar thing is said, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. So there are are two sets of things here promised, one set overlapping. First of all, the words of Jesus will be brought to their remembrance, and that was fulfilled in the giving of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are where the words of Jesus were recalled to the mind of those uh, apostles or those other disciples laboring under their umbrella, as it were, under their authority. Uh, The second thing that's promised at the other end of the scale is that the Spirit will disclose to you what is to come. And so you get the apocalyptic books uh, of uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, You get 2 Peter. Uh, You get Jude. So there is an an expectation uh, that the things to come will be revealed to the church. So there you have the bookends, what Jesus said during his earthly ministry would be brought to their mind, and what was going to happen at the end of the age would be revealed. And then between the two is the double statement that the Spirit will guide you into all truth. And that's what we have in the giving of the Pauline epistles and also in the giving of the general epistles. Every sort of question that would come up in the life of a church is dealt with under inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, by the writers of the New Testament. For example... The book of 1 Corinthians is probably the easiest one to see. You can outline the book of 1 Corinthians according to a series of questions that the Corinthian church first sent to the Apostle Paul saying, help us with these things. They wanted to know about divisions among themselves. Uh, They wanted to know about spiritual gifts and judgment. They wanted to know about how to do the Lord's Supper. They wanted to know what love was and true Christian fellowship uh, looked like. They They had questions about the resurrection. What is the resurrection like? What are we to expect in the resurrection? How, what should our attitude be towards those uh, believers that have died? And so God, through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the apostles and their agents, uh, guides his church into all truth. All truth that they need, the sufficiency of the scripture here for the life of the church is given. Now let me emphasize for you uh, that the sufficiency of scripture does not mean that the Bible says everything there is to know in all the universe. It does not mean that the Bible reveals everything there is to know about astronomy 
or about history. The Bible does not even tell us everything there is to know about theology. The Bible tells us everything we need to know about theology. It is sufficient for us. It's not exhaustive. We will never know all there is to know about theology because God is infinite. And theology is the study of God. And we will spend the rest of eternity getting to know him better, more and more and more and more better. Uh, my wife and I, Shirley and I, uh, we, were first, uh, we first got to know each other in fourth grade. Is that right, dear? Fourth grade. And her father taught me sixth grade math. He taught me how to multiply. Uh, I can remember uh, taking his timed multiplication test and being very terrified. And uh, so when, when, uh, uh, when we got interested in each other in high school and dated through college, you know, we, we already knew each other. Uh, we're, we're old Marys. We've been married nearly how long now, dear? Nearly 30 years? Yeah. And so, you know, you would think, well, you've known each other for 30 years, and so there are no more surprises. But if you're married, you realize it's not true at all. You're always learning. You always know, learn more about one another. And in the same way, as uh, we dwell in the new heavens and new earth and, and have fellowship with our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ our Lord, we will not exhaust the inexhaustible God. We will get to know him better and better and better and better. Just like the burning bush, uh, the presence of God in the church is symbolized there. It burns and burns and burns and is not consumed. The infinity of God and of his power and of his glory uh, dwells in the life of his church and is never extinguished so too we will come to know him better and better, and uh, he will continue to guide us into greater and greater knowledge. But we have before us in the Bible what is sufficient for us in our Christian living. Uh, sometimes people think that means that therefore you should never know anything about history, or that means you should never know anything about sociology or psychology, or that means you should never know anything about, uh, about science. Uh, let me tell you, the Bible talks about digging wells. And learning to dig wells is important and good. And you could probably go in the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, and study how it talks about wells and go into the Middle East and study those wells and, and do archaeological digs and learn, and learn lots of things. But if you, know, if you don't find out about amoebas and you don't find out about bacteria and getting sick, if the only solution to making water taste better that you know of is to go back to the Old Testament and try to throw a branch of a certain sort in or, or maybe make an axe head float, if you can, um, then uh, you have all the knowledge necessary to be sufficient as a Christian in your relationship with the Lord, but you're going to get very, very sick. So the Bible is sufficient in what it is attempting to be sufficient in. It is not attempting to be sufficient uh, outside of uh, uh, the realm of salvation. Uh, that doesn't mean it's ever wrong in any other area. It's never wrong. It's inspired, therefore it's inerrant. But, but we need to make sure that we understand the Bible on its own terms. We love to take the Bible and make it very authoritative uh, or exhaustive in areas where it doesn't claim to be exhaustive. But when it comes to spiritual matters and uh, the Bible speaking to us about our need for the means of grace, our need to be under the preaching of the word and the reading of the word and be involved in the singing of the word and the praying of the word and the singing of the word in the sacraments, then we can bring up lots of objections and quibbles and can be smarter than God is about worship and the Christian life. And that's precisely the area uh, where the Lord tells us, absolutely not, uh, this is what you need to know of me and how you're to worship me. Well, Old Testament canon, 
uh, leads to us thinking about New Testament canon. There was a real expectation by the teaching of Jesus in the minds of the apostles and disciples of Christ. They were expecting these promises to be fulfilled. Uh, Just like uh, in the early church, as there were persecutions, they remembered that Jesus, Jesus predicted. He assured them that they would be persecuted. And so as the persecutions came, their faith was strengthened because they rightly saw it as a confirmation of the deity of Christ. So too, as the Apostle Paul began writing, as John began writing, as Peter began writing, uh, there was confirmation, uh, there was uh, a strengthening of their faith uh, because the Lord was fulfilling his promise and giving them food for their souls. Uh, New Testament canon in its substance rests uh, not upon the opinion of men. It rests fundamentally upon apostolicity. That is, you have got to relate a book back to the apostles. You have got to see, uh, for, for a book to be accepted as canon, it has to be related to an apostle in some way. For example, who wrote the book of Galatians? Paul an apostle. Who wrote the Gospel of John? John, an apostle. Who wrote the Gospel of Luke? Luke, who was an understudy of, a disciple of, in the missionary service group and team of the Apostle Paul. So his Gospel is under the Apostle Paul's umbrella. It has his apostolic uh, editorial review and blessing, if we can put it that way. Uh, The same thing would be true of the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, And so when we get to a book like Hebrews, uh, it's most historically closely associated with the Apostle Paul. And uh, there's some, uh, uh, the earliest of records indicate that it was an an apostolic, uh, a Pauline apostolic book of some sort, perhaps a sermon uh, that was transcribed. Uh, We may not know everything we would like to know, but it's associated with the ministry of an apostle. Uh, What happened in the post-apostolic period? That is, uh, once uh, the apostles themselves died off, well, you know, naturally, books that were inspired were received and recognized and accepted by the church. But from the time of Irenaeus on, uh, the church had the the canon that we have today, both Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, There is a... Uh, Council, Council of Carthage in 397 A.D., and it gives a list of books that are part of the canon, the same list of books that we enjoy today. There were, however, debates, and there were some doubts expressed about particular books. And let me mention a few of those, because uh, it's good for you to, to recognize some of the historic uh, uh, questions and pressures that they were under. Um, the Gospels... Uh, fundamentally have, were not questioned, nor has the Pauline corpus in the life of the church fundamentally been questioned. But Second Peter and Second and Third John and Revelation and Hebrews have all been questioned at one point or another. Uh, John Calvin, for example, had questions about Second Peter. He had uh, concerns driven by theological issues uh, that were a function of some historic misunderstandings of Second Peter. Uh, second and third John uh, are an interesting set, uh, and I think the most likely explanation for doubts concerning them is because they 
probably did not circulate as separate documents. Um, if you were busy copying letters and you had a, had a nice five-chapter letter and a couple of really short one-chapter letters, you might just append the two shorter letters to the end of the one longer letter. And uh, so it's very possible that, that the Johannine uh, epistle that was being circulated had these other two fragments attached to the bottom of it. And so some people would list second and third as separate books. Others would not list them as sec- separate books because what they had looked like one work altogether. The book of Revelation had its own set of quandaries about it. Um, that's no surprise to us because we have lots of opinions about the book of Revelation today. Uh, when were or are the events of Revelation to take place? We have some people who think that they were fulfilled, that the whole book was fulfilled in 70 A.D. We have other people who believe that the book was more or less fulfilled in 70 A.D., but yet there's some uh, uh, later uh, echoes of it to be fulfilled later at the end of the age. We have other people who are quite sure that absolutely nothing in the book has ever taken place yet. And uh, depending upon whether you talk to Hal Lindsey, at whatever phase of his life he was in, or someone else, you get very interesting dates from about 1973 on uh, as to uh, what uh, the point at which Revelation is to be fulfilled uh, uh, is, is to be. Uh, it was seen as, uh, as having certain odd teachings. Uh, for example, what is accepted in broader evangelicalism today very enthusiastically of a literal uh, thousand-year reign was seen as a fundamental defect uh, that brought into question Uh, the veracity of the book uh, back in early church times. Uh, The book of Hebrews has had uh, a wide variety of different authors speculatively attached to it. And this is what happens in the life of the church sometimes when when the Lord decides to withhold the name of the author, as he did in that case. It doesn't say, I, Paul. It doesn't say, uh, well, my name is Bartholomew. It doesn't say who wrote the book. And so uh, you've had, uh, uh, to the end of uh, speculation, there has been none on that. Uh, the point here is that though there were doubts uh, about content, especially in the book of Hebrews over uh, lapsing and falling away, there are a couple chapters in Hebrews that, that leave you fearing that uh, maybe you might fall, maybe you have fallen away, or maybe you will fall away in your Christian faith. And, and I think if you read the book carefully, uh, that uh, the author is intending for you to be scared. He's intending to shake you so that you will say, Lord, is it me? So that you'll be humbled and that you'll more carefully follow Jesus. And that, uh, uh, that public speaking or that writing technique has led to uh, some people questioning the veracity of the book. So all over the Roman Empire, there were copies of different books of the Bible, of the New Testament, that were circulating. The Gospels circulated widely, but some of these lesser works were, were not uh, in both the eastern and the western portions of the empire. So, so incomplete copies led uh, to regional differences. Um, there were sometimes uh, attempts to limit books only to direct authorship by an apostle, and that created problems, for example, with Acts of the Apostles and, and Luke. Uh, These were more minor objections, but sometimes that has come up, uh, whereas a more careful reflection on the text uh, would see that that something being written under apostolic approbation is fine. The Apostle Paul, in writing his own epistles, is not always listed as the singular author. 
Sometimes he co-authors letters with Timothy or with another figure. It, but it's his presence as an inspired apostle that is uh, definitive. Uh, there were doubts about uh, the apostolicity of Revelation. Which John wrote the Revelation of John? Was it John the Apostle or someone after? Uh, there were doubts as to the theological content of some books. For example, James. Was James intending to teach works righteousness? Well, if he is, that's out of accord with Romans and Galatians, and we can't accept it. Uh, whereas a more careful reading of James lets us know that uh, he's not objection, objecting to salvation by grace through faith. He's just insisting that works uh, is an important evidence of them. I mentioned Chileism, and I had mentioned uh, also the book of Hebrews and questions surrounding it. So there are these questions which have arisen, but at the end of the day, uh, there are basic tests that uh, let us know uh, what, uh, here's a list of, of what I've just uh, recited for you. Why the later doubts? Yeah, Chileism is the idea in, in uh, Revelation of a thousand, literal thousand-year reign. Yeah, that was objected to by the early church in very strenuous terms in some of the cases of some of the church fathers, interestingly. Um, Why? It was seen as being uh, too crassly literal in a book that was more symbolic, and uh, it was seen as being... Uh, too worldly and too fleshly in its emphasis, rather than having an emphasis upon heaven, which is a, a different way than people tend to think today. So the church also faced a challenge in the area of canon uh, because it wasn't just well-intended Christians out there that were writing uh, or uh, copying books and circulating them. You also had the Judaizer party, which was opposed to the teaching of the Apostle Paul, wanted everyone to become a, a, a Pharisaical Jew before they could become a Christian. As Christians, wanted them to make sure that they were obeying the Mosaic Law in detail. And uh, this uh, party was very zealous, therefore, to edit some New Testament books and to flat out reject others. And so Marcion uh, and his uh, truncated canon grew up. And he would uh, go through and have his scholars edit portions of, a, uh, of uh, New Testament volumes or books that disagreed with his Pharisaical, uh, Judaizing kind of teaching. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas is an example of a false gospel written by Gnostic teachers. They would write their own fanciful gospels. And uh, they would have Jesus doing uh, all sorts of things during his childhood. What better period to write than about than Jesus' teenage years, when the Gospels themselves are actually silent. So you could make up anything you want and didn't have to worry about reconciling it with anything. And you could attempt to uh, slip your Eastern philosophy in uh, under that heading. Uh, well, what's that challenge, that external challenge to the church did, was force the church to do uh, more careful self-reflection uh, on uh, what the teaching of the apostles was, what the implications of the old testament were what jesus had taught them and therefore to recognize uh, that the that irenaeus's position uh, on what books were authoritative was uh, the proper one uh, to hold on to in the end uh, jim packer has given us three broad outlines on how to recognize a canonical book and i find these very helpful it's in the new dictionary of theology uh, in the chapter on uh, scripture and the first point that he makes is that the, the, the first historic test is either 
apostolic authorship or apostolic authentication of a text. That is a recognition that this book was either written by an apostle or accepted by an apostle uh, under his uh, 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 rubric or authority. Secondly, the content of the book should be Christ-honoring in its doctrinal content, and it should be in line with the rest of the scriptures, not some book coming out of left field, not some book questioning or undermining or contradicting apostolic teaching at any point. It has to be in line with the rest of the Bible because, yes, there are multiple human authors to the Bible, but there's only one divine author. And so if God, the Holy Spirit, has inspired a text, then that text must be in keeping with the other texts. And then finally, this is a a historical principle which continues to grow in its importance for us and reinforces for us the fact uh, that the Bible is to be accepted. There's a continuous fruitful use and a continuous acknowledgement within the church of the book being uh, inspired from the apostolic period forward. And so every morning when you're having your quiet time, every Sunday when the word of God is read from this pulpit, Uh, Every time when the word is even preached and applied to our hearts and our consciences, we should grow in our assurance. We should grow in our understanding and appreciation of the fact that that is evidence that that, that portion of the Bible is the word of God because of the impact that it has on us and the change that God makes uh, in us through it. And that this is something that has been continuous from the time of the apostolic period forward. Obviously, the book written to Corinth had to make it from Corinth to other cities. The same can be said of the, church, of the epistles to the Galatians and the Ephesians and the Philippians and the Colossians and etc. But those books have now been copied and circulated, and we enjoy the blessing and benefit of them. And so it's not just the testimony of people from of old, but even from today, that uh, give further buttressing evidence uh, to the canonicity uh, of the Bible. And so uh, the confession of faith can tell us rightly that the authority of the Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed depends not upon the testimony of man or the church, but wholly upon God whose truth itself and the author thereof. And therefore it is to be received because it's the Word of God. And that we may be moved by all kind of wonderful aspects of the Bible. And those are all very important that they have listed there. The absolute of the doctrine, majesty of the style, consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole... All of these things are wonderful, but notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and the divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. As we read our Bibles, we know better still the fact that it's true and sure. Well, next week we'll take a look at... uh, inspiration more narrowly and uh, uh, talk about, uh, look at how the Bible unfolds for us uh, the importance of inspiration. But we'll uh, stop at this point on canonicity and take a, uh, can we do a five-minute break? Can we do that? Let's take a five-minute break. Well, welcome back, everyone. I thought we might spend some time this evening 
Going back to our friend Jeffrey, if you have this book, you might want to pull it out. We're probably going to look at a few passages. If you don't, that's okay. Just you can follow along here. But I, I have to apologize to you. I've neglected poor Jeffrey here. Um, last couple of sessions, of course, last session, I don't think I referenced him at all. Session before that, I wasn't here. I uh, didn't reference him then either. So we're going to sort of go back in here and sort of catch up on a few things. But still, I want to stay within the context of, of sort of the Holy Scriptures, as we've been talking about the last several sessions. Because this, I think these few chapters I want to talk about, 7, 8, and 9, and Jeffrey, will kind of, I think, help us see a little bit sort of how Scripture informs us and, and where it doesn't necessarily inform us. So I think this will be a good place for us to start here. Before we do that, though, here's a, a couple of questions for you, if I could. And by the way, I'm going to ask you questions. Um, at, really, I, I, I'd love if you would answer them. Uh, but if, if you do, um, speak loudly so we can try to get your, your uh, words uh, recorded forever for all eternity. How many of you have heard of sort of the, the name it and claim it gospel? You ever heard that expression? You actually heard it preached, right? <laughs> what do we mean by that? I mean, we, what is somebody, you hear a name it and claim it preacher. What is that person saying? I just want to know what it means. What do we mean by name it and claim it? What's that supposed to express? <laughs> That's pretty good, and you might have a future. What does God want to give me? A car? Well, I could use one. I think it has also one aspect of it has to do with you actually have to verbalize what you believe God uh, will you're claiming by faith and yeah. you know, somehow state it or keep saying it. Yeah, yeah. And that, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I've heard it before where, like, when someone's sick and they're asking for their healing and they're, like, claiming and you receive it. Mm-hmm. And I actually went through that with my dad. He had cancer and he's like, I'm going to get healed because that's what the word says. And we have to say it, we believe it. And you got to believe it, right. And isn't, I don't want to put too sharp a point on this, isn't sort of the saying it, isn't that supposed to reflect that you really, really mean it, right? And if you just have, see how it sort of shifts the burden to you. If you just have enough faith, then that thing you're looking for, whether it's good health or, or a new job or that car you've been having your, you have your eye on, it'll come, but you, you gotta believe and, and the, the expression of it is the evidence of your belief. That might be a necessary step as well, right? You've got to sort of properly... Yeah, that shows your faith is really real. So they can see it, right? If you just give it, you know, behind the scenes, who knows, right? I've got a good example of that. Boys, I thought the fourth was going to be a little girl. I went out and bought a little girl. On faith. You bought it on faith. <laughs> Who is not a girl by any stretch? <laughs> For those who only pick and choose uh-huh. the, 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 the scriptures that they want to pull out of that, yeah. when Christ says, if you have enough faith, you well, sure. move that mountain. That's right. If you, if you take your verses out of context, you can get it to... And so, going back to sort of the big theme here, scripture might seem... Again, taken out of context, taken sort of, you know, without sort of the, the, the bigger sort of context there, you might be able to sort of twist scripture to your purpose. Now, here's the thing. If you keep on reading, oh, it's amazing how many times these verses that are often used as sort of the, you know, the catchphrase to, to show us that this, 
if you just sort of keep reading or read the thing that came right before it, you'll see that actually that's not true. Scripture is consistent. As Dr. Rankin was saying, in fact, that's how we know it's Scripture. It is consistent. And so we will, we'll find, in fact, that, that things like sort of the, the name it and claim it approach to the gospel are really not true, but you've got to read the book, right? You've got to know what's in there. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're defenseless against this kind of argument. The thing you notice is you don't find a lot of people naming and claiming those promises that in this world you will have tribulation. Exactly. More tribulation. No, wait, I don't want more tribulation. Less tribulation is what I'm looking for. Now, that's, that's a, I have to, I wasn't going to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. My, I'm not, I'm not a pastor by profession, so I think I can say these sorts of things. If I were, um, I wouldn't say these things out loud, but I have, you know, almost no uh, authority over me except God himself. So, here's the thing. My mother, sainted and blessed though she is, is a big fan of Creflo Dollar. Do you know Creflo Dollar? The guy wears a purple suit. And I mean purple. I'm not saying like blue with a tint. No, I mean it's like purple, like the Joker used to wear purple. He's very much along these lines, right? And this, what is what is his appeal to my mother? What is what is what does he say? He tells her sort of in a sense what she wants to hear. Whatever's missing in your life, whatever that thing is, whatever that whatever makes you unhappy, whatever that is, and for that can be different for different people, right? You might think that you know maybe you're. You know, your, your boss doesn't treat you well. That makes you unhappy. Maybe you don't have the things you wish you had. That makes you unhappy. It doesn't matter. What do people like him say to people like my mother? You can have whatever it is that's keeping you from being happy. You can get it. You just got to believe enough to receive it. God wants to give it to you. He's, as you said, he's sort of sitting up in heaven just waiting for you. I, I want to stress something here. There's really coming to a point, believe it or not. It has to do with chapter 7 here in the Jeffrey book, Bite-Sized Theology. Why is that counter to the gospel as presented in Scripture? What is different about the gospel? Why are we unhappy? Yeah, the bottom line, and this is where, I'm glad you said it just like that, This is where we sort of, our culture does not want to hear this part of the message. You're unhappy because you are a wicked sinner. And so are all the people around you. You, it is possible to have joy and contentment in this life, but it won't be because God's going to fix your relationship with your boss or is going to give you the car you've been looking for or is going to whatever. That's not how that's going to happen. It will happen if, if, through that profession, through that developing relationship, you come to know the living Savior. That, that will make a huge difference in your life. But what's absent is the subject here of chapter 7. Our culture does not like to talk about sin. And so you could listen to many pastors, some of the pastors that you and I know. You could listen under, to their preaching for, for years and never hear sin mentioned one time. I, I always I have many... Christian friends who are in exactly that situation, and, and I'll sometimes ask them, okay, you say that, that Jesus saves, that salvation is found in Christ. You profess the name. What's he saving you from? You understand that salvation makes no sense unless you first have sin. And well, exactly, you've got to have repentance, but, but even to have repentance, I must, I must first understand sin. If I don't understand the sin, then I won't feel the need to repent. I won't, I don't think I need saved from anything. I'm just fine the way I am. Now, 
how do we know that we sin? How would you ever figure that out? Yeah, first of all, the pe- people around you might sort of just get a- offended and annoyed and angry with you because of the things you do. That might be a, a tip-off, right? Scripture, I think, might even take us a little further than that. God's law is written on our hearts, right? We are our own witness against ourselves in that sense. We know what's right. We know we don't do it. And it doesn't take, again, you don't, it would be great if you did have other witnesses, others sort of checking your conscience. It would be fantastic, in fact, if you had a pastor who would sometimes tell you, uh, this is God's law, and if you don't do it, you're sinning. But the real witness against ourselves is our own selves. We know God's law is written on our hearts. Turn with me, if you would, to, um, if you have your Bibles with you here. I know I just told you I was going to look at Jeffrey, and we are looking at Jeffrey, I promise. Uh, but turn with me to Genesis. You can find Genesis, right? That's not, that's not a hard one. Genesis chapter 3. In fact, I'll bet many of you, you've read this so many times, you could probably recite it back to me. I won't ask you to do that. But this, I just, I'll read a little portion of the Genesis account of the fall. So we're in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Most tragic moment in all of human history right there. And that's seven verses. It's not very much. We could spend the next several weeks just talking about those seven verses. We're not going to do that. Um, let me ask you, I'll start with a little softball question for you, just to warm me up here. Uh, what is Satan, the serpents, what's Satan's role in this little story? What does he do? This is not a trick question. Yeah. He, I mean, you sum it up in a single word, he deceives. How does he... We don't have to go into great detail. How does he deceive Eve? Yeah, exactly. He twists words, right? He takes a little bit of truth, but then adds a lot of error into it, uses that to kind of deceive her. Now, does that let Eve off the hook? I mean, deception usually wouldn't... I mean, if somebody lies to you and convinces you to do something that's not good... You're, you're innocent, right? You, you were tricked. You were deceived, right? Is Eve just sort of... Is she innocent? She's not. Why not? Fundamentally, she knew what she was supposed to do. She didn't do it. Sure, the serpent lied to her, tempted her, deceived her, used crafty words. But at the end of the day, who ate of the fruit? Eve and Adam. 
ate of the fruit they weren't supposed to eat. They knew the rule. They broke it. So Satan tempts, right? But you see that at, at issue here is we sin. You will not be able to stand before God and say to him on judgment day, oh, yeah, I didn't, okay, well, yeah, the, the, Satan convinced me to do that, so it was a trick. Sorry, I wouldn't have done it, right? No, no, no. You did it. We sin. Sin is ours, right? We, we own that. And that's kind of, I think that's, that's very important to what we want to talk about here out of Jeffrey. Look with me on page, um, if you have the book with you, pull it out, on page 39. He makes a strong claim here. Tell me what you think of this. I'm looking at the very first sentence of chapter 7. We need to understand, Jeffrey says, Genesis 3, if we are to understand the gospel, everything else that follows in the Bible does so as a consequence of the events that took place in the Garden of Eden. That's a pretty strong claim. Do you catch that? You can't understand the gospel unless you understand the story we just read. Why is that so critical to the gospel? I know some people who just don't read the Old Testament at all, right? The New Testament's full of all the good stuff. It's the part I want to read. It gets me so happy. But here, Jeffrey, this guy who wrote this little book, very clever cover, he's telling us, no, 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 you've got to go back to Genesis, especially chapter 3, if you want to get the gospel at all. Why is that so important? Well, it hinges on it. How so? I mean, you're right, it does hinge on it. How so? Well, without the fall, there's no sin. No sin, you don't need to say it. It's really pretty simple. Precisely. It really puts, you're exactly right, the fall is at the center. Without that, frankly, the gospel is, it's silly. It gets kind of ridiculous if you don't have sin in the first place, right? But we do, and that's why this is so critical. Jeffrey here points us to, uh, to Psalm 32 for a moment. Let's turn there. I guess that's why... There's a lot of people who just believe that Jesus is a good teacher because they don't, I mean, they don't uh, believe in sin. Absolutely. They don't really believe in sin. Sin as in, I chose to do that which is wicked. In fact, speaking of, so let's look at this. In, in, in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, I think this illustrates exactly the point, or Jeffrey uses this to illustrate exactly that point. Look what he says here. Uh, this is the psalmist, verses, the first two verses of, of Psalm 32. Listen to the words carefully chosen. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You know how the, the Hebrews often would write sort of little couplets. They would sort of say it once and then sort of say it again in a different way, but trying to essentially illustrate the same point. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Three words there, Jeffrey points out. In, uh, transgression, sin, and iniquity, which are essentially synonyms. And if you look at different parts of Scripture, you'll see those words used pretty much interchangeably. And they, they all have sort of different meanings, but you, you'll see how they, they all kind of point to the same principle. Iniquity, kind of, a, I'm sorry, tra- let's start with the first one, transgression. Think of what the word transgress literally means. It means kind of like to go across something. What's being stated here, God has established boundaries, and we have gone across them, right? What does sin mean? Sin sin literally means to fall short of a standard. God has set up this standard. We did not reach it. This is righteousness. Down here is us. You see how different illustrations, but exactly getting at the same point, right? God set the rules. We broke them. And then iniquity, this is my favorite. The word, if you think, again, think about the literal meaning of the word. It sort of means sort of, crooked or not straight 
And isn't that a good, again, a good way to think of sin is we are doing, we, we ourselves, in fact, become crooked. We are not straight. We are not measured by that straight bar. We are twisted, broken, not straight. And so what's Jeffrey getting at here? He's just simply saying that, that when we think about what is sin, it's falling short of that which God has set up as our expectation. Eve knew she should not eat that fruit, and she ate it. We know. Now, this, there's no qualification here. Everybody who has read the book of Exodus knows the rule. No, it doesn't say that. We all know what's right, and we just don't do it. We sin, right? There's another, um, I don't know the exact scripture, but I remember reading in the Old Testament, I don't even know what book, but it said somewhere in there how uh, God already placed that in our consciousness, like since we were born. Yeah, it's, nobody needs to, you're exactly right, nobody needs to be sort of in a sense, in that sense, taught that this is sin and this is not. It's sort of there. Now, maybe we can't sort of explain it, right? It's one thing to sort of, and you all know that lots of things we sort of know in this fashion, we sort of, we know it internally, would have a hard time expressing it to someone else maybe, right? And maybe it falls in that category possibly, quite possibly. But nevertheless, Scripture is clear throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. That's in us. We know. Nobody is innocent. Nobody can say, I didn't know. Oh, you mean adultery is wrong? You didn't need to be told. You knew. And you're responsible for it. You won't be able to claim ignorance. It's a very popular thing in our culture today. Um, does environment cause sin? What if, what if you're raised in a bad home? Doesn't that, that, that could explain bad behavior, right? Why does Johnny act the way he does? Not Johnny, but you know what I mean. Um, I wasn't pointing, really. <clears throat> Why does he act the way he does? Well, because, boy, you know, his parents were really mean to him when he was young, and so he acted out. You hear that story all the time. You hear that sort of thing all the time, right? How about, um, actually, boy, if you you watch Oprah, boy, people's parents really are responsible for a lot of stuff. Uh, I can only assume that their parents had bad parents. Imagine how bad that must have been. Or simply, this is actually a very common one, just being poor. Not having stuff, apparently, can make us do bad things. This is, we, I, I, I stress this point. We live in a culture that does not think sin exists. Like Mr. Campbell was just saying a few moments ago, there is no such thing. Now, of course, evil exists when we know it. People do bad stuff. People do horrible things. From little things like stealing something that doesn't belong to them, hubcaps off their neighbor's car, to horrific things like shooting children. These things happen. How do you explain it if you don't believe in sin? That's, by the way, think of if it's true that that law is written on our hearts. What kind of effort must it take to not believe in sin? There's no sin, no such thing. That is, in one sense, it's heroic. Wow, you really did a good job suppressing the truth. But nevertheless, it's real, right? And we're held accountable for it. And we won't be able to, again, stand before God. Oh, I'm sorry, Lord. Oprah told me my mother mistreated me, didn't breastfeed me, and so these things happened. It's just not at all like that. Uh, yeah. Did you really hit on it when you said they don't want to be held accountable? I think every human understands right and wrong. Yeah, yeah. People don't accept accountability or that they're judgment. I think you're absolutely right. And, I mean, it goes back to that. Jesus told us how to know, right? Yeah. If you love your neighbor as yourself. Not that hard. Then, then that's the measure. Yeah, if, if yeah. Not, if, if they do that to you and it, and it hurts you, you know that's sin. 
that's sin. Doesn't exactly. You don't. You don't need a theologian to help you with that, right? You don't need a, a preacher to tell you and remind you. Actually, it might be good, but but it's not necessary, right? But you're right. It's the way we live. Yeah, sure. It's like it's a continuum, right? As though, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm gonna say something here. I realize this is being recorded, so maybe I'll go back and edit the tape later. But um, <laughs> my neighbor stole the cash box from Girl Scouts selling cookies in front of Kroger. Do you know how bad you have to be to drive up to a group of Girl Scouts at a folded up, you know, folding table in front of Kroger, selling their cookies, grab their money and run off and you that is bad. That is really bad. And I've never seen any rule book anywhere that says don't steal from Girl Scouts. Right? Expense, yeah, there there could be provocation, but in this case there was not. We just know certain things are wrong, right? We just, not, we just don't, and yet we don't live as though that's true. Ultimately, it gets back to, it gets back, frankly, even all the way back to Genesis, right? Why did Eve take that fruit? Remember, what, is, what does the serpent say to her? You will be like God. I, wait, I don't have to be the person under authority. I can be the authority. I guess I, I, sometimes yeah, I think about that whole event, and my, my quandary is, if, you know, she, she didn't have a sin nature at that time, but pride, did pride, or what happened before she took the app? I mean, when did that fall actually take place? Yeah. Oh, you mean the fall? The fall. Well, at what moment? I, I want to warn you here. Um, it might be a different moment altogether. This is not my area of expertise. I'm just going to say, uh, you know, sin happened. I can live with that. I understand. But what does the rest of Scripture point to as the fall? Adam's sin. I'm not sure the fall happened when Eve ate anything at all, at any moment. But when Adam came along, that seems to be the one that all the later apostles point to, right? So I, that's not, and maybe it's not a good answer to your question, but... What if he hadn't? What if he said, oh, Eve, oh, oh, hey, shouldn't have done that. I, didn't I tell you not to do that? I mean, what the, God said? I, I don't know. That's speculative what would happen, right? But, but it's, it's Adam's sin that we are partakers of. He's our federal head, not, not Eve. <laughs> so you're saying that he should never... Okay, all right. <laughs> I'm just going to back off that statement. Let's talk about something neat and clean like Romans 1. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 1 with me. Because it kind of illustrates what we're talking about here. And this is what Jeffrey points us to this here on page 41. But Romans 1, uh, we'll pick up maybe verse 21. This comes after, I'm picking up in the middle of a paragraph, but I think you'll, you'll be able to follow. This is that paragraph in which Paul is basically saying that nature itself expresses who God is, right? His creation tells us about his attributes. So we're picking up into that. And this is where Paul says, 21, for although they knew God, right? 
people, they knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Finally, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Those are sobering words. And who's he talking about? This isn't like some special group of people that had an unusual experience. These are ordinary men and women. These are us, in a sense. These are people who did not... He's not saying, well, boy, they didn't have uh, the Old Testament to teach them how to behave and so these things... No. Nature tells us everything we need to know about our sin and about God. What it doesn't tell us... Now, this is... I hasten to add... It doesn't tell us the road out of this, right? So once we fall into sin, what do we do? Nature doesn't reveal that, right? Salvation is not revealed in that way. Salvation is revealed through Scripture, which we'll talk about in a moment. But in the meantime, we are stuck with this very serious problem. We are accountable for our sin because we really know better. And God gives us over to our own lusts then. If that's the choice we make, all right, he gives that to us. And we see here the results are not pretty. It's, it's quite ugly, in fact. If I could, um, Jeffrey ends this chapter on the very bottom of page 41. He does this every time. I don't know if you've ever sort of paid close attention to sort of his technique here. But he always quotes some significant uh, uh, Christian figure, some author or or somebody who has written on the subject in some uh, sort of profound way. And he quotes here uh, one of my favorite authors, a guy named John Stott. And he says, this is John Stott now, so this this is Jeffrey quoting him. He says, Much that we take for granted in civilized society is based upon the assumption of human sin. Really, think about this for a moment. This is really profound, I thought. Nearly all legislation, all the laws we make for ourselves, has grown up because human beings cannot be trusted to settle their own disputes with justice and without self-interest. Why do we have the laws we do? Because we lie, cheat, and steal. That's what we do. A promise is not enough. We need a contract. Doors are not enough. We have to have locks and bolt them. The payment of fares is not enough. Tickets have to be issued, inspected, and collected. You ever think about that? You ever gone to like I don't know some kind of show or something, or you know, and or here, you could try this. You can try this right now. You go to the rodeo, right? And what do you do? You, you go online, you buy your ticket, they go to, you, you print it off there, and when you go there, there's a seat with a number and a row, and you go sit in that one. Plenty of other seats, but you can't sit in those. You got to sit in that one. That's the one you paid for. You see what Stott's getting at here? Why do we have to do all that? Because we would cheat. The first moment we go, there's a better seal. I'll go sit over there. You You didn't pay for it. Exactly. exactly. So sin sort of piled on top of sin. Oh, that wasn't the official website. We just took your money. That's all. And try this with, with an airline. They will sometimes sell your seat to more than one person. 
Sin is everywhere, right? And, and so you see what Stott's getting at here. So much of what we do in our culture is premised on the tacit, tacit acknowledgement of sin. Why do we have laws at all? Because we know, ultimately, the people around us will do bad things to us, and I don't want them done to me. Look, I don't want to be murdered, so let's have laws against it. It's not so much me I'm worried about. It's you, all of you people out there. You'll steal my stuff. You'll kill me. You'll take things. It's a terrible, terrible place. The only problem is all of you are sort of in the same boat, right? Because I, you know, boy, given the opportunity, I'd take all your stuff. <laughs> this could turn out badly for all of us. You're right. <clears throat> Look at what he says here just to finish off the thought. He says, um, law and order are not enough. We need police to enforce them. Right, so now we have the laws, now we've got to have enforced them. All this is due, he says, to man's sin. We cannot trust each other. We need protection against one another. It is a terrible indictment of human nature. And understand, this is what we do. We know enough about sin to know, to lock our doors, to make laws, to protect it. We try, right? It doesn't stop necessarily all the bad stuff from happening, right? But we know there's a problem. We know this. We know it with so, such certainty that we build up sort of defenses against it. Sin is a very real thing. Even if our preachers tell us just, you just name what you want and you believe it and you'll get it. And that, Well, okay, but that doesn't get rid of sin. It doesn't work either, but it doesn't get rid of sin. Any questions so far? How are we doing? Everybody okay? I see several people nodding. Only a couple of people nodding off. That's good. The next look, boy, this, this, uh, this Peter Jeffrey guy is clever. We've just been talking about sin which might make you feel bad. I don't know if you've, boy, if you really reflect, that last little bit there, it, terrible indictment of human nature. If you're human, you should feel bad about what you just read there, right? Uh, most of you and, and myself included, I think we're mostly humans. And the, the implication there is that we are bad, wicked sinners in need of, well, salvation. And look at the next chapter. It's actually called atonement. This is good news now. This is, we're not left hanging. Jeffrey moves along. Look, the subheading even, God dealing with sin. So the sin is, and notice how he puts it, God dealing with sin. So that's the, probably will tip off to where we're headed, I'll bet, huh? I just, I don't know um, why I wrote this. These are my notes. Have you ever seen me? I, I just jot these things down. Oh, these are the questions I want to ask. Uh, this first question is actually a dumb question. If you read the chapter title, uh, I ask you, so I'm not going to say this out loud. Why did Christ die? This is what I was going to ask you. Well, that's kind of a, kind of a silly question if I just read the God dealing with sin part. Why did Christ die? Excellent answer. You get an A. Thank you very much. What was that? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of ways we could answer that, right? It was his father's will that he should die to deal with sin, exactly. This is not, it's not an accident, right? Now, the word atonement... By my calculation, that's three syllables in one word. That's a lot. Most people check out around two. What does the word atonement mean? We, we it, you know, it's sort of in Christianese, we do talk about it a lot, I think. Um, but what is it? Again, <laughs> that might be down to a B now, actually. <clears throat> I'm not saying it's wrong. It is, in essence, God dealing with sin. But but how does he... Pardon me? 
Yeah, so it implies, right, we've, as we were saying, sin is falling short of a standard. Well, there's a gap now, right, between us and the standard. How do you make it up? How do you fill it in? How do you get from down here to up there, right? We're going to atone, make up for. Now, when I put it like that, we need to make up for the sin. The moment you start to think in those terms, you can see how very quickly, and, and we have brothers and sisters out there in this world, other denominations, who will certainly make the case, well, well, I better start doing something to make up for it, right? Maybe if I said some, I'm going to say this out loud, if I said some Hail Marys, maybe that would help make up for it. If I did, if I put more in the collection plate, maybe that'll make up for it, right? Pretty quickly, you can see how, well, it's my sin, I've got to do something to atone for it, to make up for it, to compensate for it. It's an easy sort of problem to fall into, except what's wrong with that? You never can do it. Right? There's not enough. You could never do enough good. How, how much is it worth to, in essence, deny your creator one time? Because then you're saying, isn't that, isn't that what we do when we sin? We displace God. Go back to Eve. You will be like God. God said, don't do it. She does it. She puts herself in God's place. She elevates herself, in essence, above him. I'll be my own lawmaker. Isn't that what all of us do when we sin? You know, I covet my neighbor's goods. Well, what is that? I just said, God said no. I say yes. I'm more important than God. I'm putting my, myself above him. How much is it worth? How many good things do I need to do to make up for once denying my creator? I'm not sure there's enough good that could be done. And that's just, that's one sin. Let me tell you, if I just made the list of what I did today, we'd be here a long time. We're not going to make up for it. There's no amount of good we can do to fill in that gap, to compensate, to atone for even a, a low estimate of our sins. So what would it take then? How do we make up for it? Yeah, that's why, again, Jeffrey's not a fool. Why does God deal with this sin? Well, first of all, we can't. Can't be done. None of us are in a position to deal with it ourselves. Look with me on, um, jump all the way to page 45, if you will. About three lines from the top of the page. One, actually, I should probably back up here. Um, he's talking here about uh, Leviticus chapter 16. We could go back and look at it, but who who likes to read Leviticus 16? Uh there's a sort of a process here for dealing with sin that involves, as described in Leviticus, two goats. I don't know about you. I've always found goats to be funny animals. But not so funny in the Old Testament. These two goats serve two purposes. It's actually not that complicated. Um, this is what he's about to describe here. He's talking about the goats uh, in sort of the atoning, cleansing process in Leviticus 16. This is, this is Jeffrey's summary. He says, one was killed, one of these goats was killed, and its blood was taken by the high priest into the most holy place, the holy of holies inside the temple, and sprinkled on the mercy seat. This symbolized, Jeffrey writes, the turning away of the wrath of God from man's guilt. All right? But there's another goat, don't forget. Remember, there were two. The other goat, he says, is called the scapegoat. That's a phrase you've probably heard. Even if you've never read Leviticus, you've heard the term scapegoat, right? The other is called the scapegoat, was brought to the high priest who laid his hands on the animal's head 
and confessed the sins of the people. Symbolically, the sins were transferred to the scapegoat and it was sent out into the desert, portraying the taking away of the sin of the people. Now, this is sort of an Old Testament illustration here, right? This is, this is typically not how we, we handle sin, right? It's not like, how many of you have goats? Probably not many of you, I suppose. And you probably wouldn't put your hands on them or yeah, it gets bloody and messy. That's, but you understand what's, you see what Jeffrey's getting at here, what's being symbolized in this ritual. It's not as though killing a goat or throwing one out of town, it doesn't take away anybody's sin. The act of doing that does not relieve us of our sin burden. But it does sort of teach us something. As he says, it symbolizes something. The removal of God's wrath, the casting out of the sins. These are all just little pictures or illustrations of what we know from our perspective very clearly because we have the Old and New Testament to look at. We have the scriptures revealed, right, in a way that, Again, sin, all that, God's law ripping on our hearts. Oh, but the method of atonement, how we're going to do something about that? For that, we need the scriptures, right? And what do the scriptures tell us? In the Old Testament, they point. They point us towards that sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And what do we get from the New Testament? <laughs> Christ on the cross. We get the very, the very act itself. And so we have the privilege, living in the, the church age, we do now, we have the privilege of looking back on an accomplished fact. This is... An advantage, frankly, we have over our brethren of the Old Testament period. They had to believe on faith, right? They, they, ultimately, they believe in the same Christ we do, but he hadn't come yet. We believe on a Christ who has come and has done his work. We don't have to hope. We, we live in a reality. That's a beautiful thing. So even as the Old Testament sort of, and this, this, is, just, this is just one example, the two goats, the whole sacrificial system is meant to kind of illustrate and point us towards that one real, true sacrifice of Christ. Which is why, I hope you don't do this, we don't sacrifice bloody things on altars anymore. Why do we not do that? It's been done. It's been accomplished. It would be to deny Christ to do it again. That would be a foul thing. As if Christ's sacrifice weren't good enough, here's another goat. Well, that's crazy. If you really think that's necessary, then you have, we should talk after class. In this chapter, um, Jeffrey throws out a couple of tough words here. Substitution. What role does substitution play in the forgiveness of our sins? Jamie, go ahead. That's right. Again, you see the illustration with the goat, right? The sins of the people are transferred to the scapegoat. Christ is substituted for us. He didn't sin. We know that. He didn't sin. We did. But our sins are transferred. He is substituted for us. And then goes and pays up the penalty that we would have paid, in fact. That's, um, that's a, again, many syllables. I can't even count them in substitution. Long word, but it's a, in a way a very simple sort of, sort of, uh, sort of principle being illustrated. Christ takes our place. He's substituted for us. On page 46, Jeffrey uses the word, oh, this is a tough one, propitiation. What is propitiation besides hard to say? That, that usually brings silence to a crowd. Oh, yeah, propitiation. Don't know. Anybody but Jamie, anybody at all. Go ahead. Exactly. You use the key word there. If you don't understand God's wrath, propitiation doesn't make any sense. 
Look at what um, look at what uh, what Jeffrey says here. Propitiation means that on the cross, bearing our sin and guilt, Jesus faced the wrath of God for us, and fully paid on our behalf the debt we owed to the broken law of God. Look at this next sentence. At Calvary, Jesus made it possible for a holy God to be propitious. That is favorably inclined. That's the literal meaning. Favorably inclined, sort of in our favor, as it were, towards us, even though we are guilty sinners. Otherwise, you understand, God couldn't really do that, right? He couldn't be favorably inclined to us if we were just steeped in guilt and sin. That has to be overcome. And he does it through Jesus Christ. One last, we're going to stop here in just a moment. He uses one, look, it's right there on the next, same page. This word is one syllable, easy. Um, why does, I don't mean to be gross when I say this, why does blood come up so often in Scripture? I think about it in the Old Testament, it's everywhere. In the New Testament, I don't know if it's everywhere, but it's invoked as an idea a lot. Why so much, why so much blood in the Bible? That is, boy, that is absolutely true. What? But you understand what I'm getting at when I say, why? What? Shed blood? If this were a movie, I couldn't let my children watch it. So that's, actually, this is very, you're right. All the way back in Genesis, we're taught that, right? That the, the, the life of the thing is in its blood, right? So that's, that seems to be very important. Exactly. Without it, what's the alternative? It's life. It's its absence is death, right? It's exactly. Jesus really, really died. He had to die, right? And his blood was shed. That's that's how he died, right? That the shedding of blood caused that. And if he doesn't die, as Mr. Bergman says, our sins aren't forgiven. Why is blood such a common theme throughout Scripture? It is. It is the gift of life. It is also the cause of death. Without either one of those, if Christ doesn't live that perfect life and if he doesn't die that innocent death, the rest of us suffer for all eternity. But he did. And as Jeffrey says in the chapter subtitle, this is God's method of dealing with sin. God deals with it by sending his son to be a substitution of propitiation for us. We're probably out of time here, so we should stop. Any, any last questions or comments on these couple of chapters? <laughs> this exactly oh this should just make you so excited this is boy you are just you are so blessed i'm blessed we're all blessed let's uh let's close with a word of prayer together can we do that gracious god indeed we do say wow this is a tremendous blessing it is so hard even to wrap our minds around why would you a perfectly righteous god even Concern yourself for a moment with fallen, sinful creatures like us, and yet you, you do, and you didn't just think about us. You sent your son to be the substitution for us and to accept the penalty that was rightfully ours. Father, we are grateful, grateful from the depths of our heart we are grateful. And in our gratitude, Lord, we ask that you would help us to become more like that Christ, help us to become more and more sanctified each day and, and live our lives uh, for him and for you. We pray now as we uh, depart company here that in a couple of weeks you'd bring us back and renew our studies as we look into your word and into the study of you. We pray this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. The next time we're together, we'll look at the next two chapters, uh, 9 and 10. Do 9 and 10.